Well, good morning to guests. Um, if you're with us for the first time or second time or third time, I um, hope you feel welcome. We're not really in a sermon series right now where we're kind of normally our steady state is to kind of work our way through books of the Bible. But this summer we're taking a little bit of a break from that. Um, hopefully, Lord willing, next week we'll start a journey through the book of Colossians. So I'm looking forward to beginning that with you um, as we journey through Paul's letter there. Uh, but this morning we're going to look at Proverbs 3. And as I thought about this text... Uh, it's really interesting. I, I kind of see it as a bookend to the last two Sunday sermons with our special guest preachers. If you remember, two weeks ago, Pastor Matt Troop from California was here, and he preached on busyness and the way that uh, can affect our spiritual lives. And then last week, Michael Amati was here, and he preached on worry. And this week, I'm going to preach on Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, on kind of how to live a long and peaceful life. So I've, I've titled, I've kind of seen the three, this, these are three... If I could call this sermon, these last three sermons anything, it would be This American Life or something like that, where you think about if there's ever three areas that our culture needs to be addressed in from Scripture, and even we as God's people need to be reminded of, it's in the areas of things like busyness and worry and wisdom, is it not? So this morning we're going to look at the subject of wisdom from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And just a reminder that the book of Proverbs is not a book of promises. It's not, it's not full. It certainly has promises contained within it. But it's a book that describes how basically life is what works when it's lived and under the authority of God and w- with the reality of God in view. If you, but if you think about Proverbs, it's just one book of wisdom in a corpus of wisdom that we call the wisdom books in the Bible that include Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and Job and the book of Psalms, of course. And the book of Job describes all the exceptions to what the book of Proverbs lays out. The book of Proverbs is basically, this is the way life generally works when it's guided by God's wisdom. But you can be a righteous person like Job and be completely blindsided. And it, it, it not be because you did anything wrong. It's because you live in a fallen world that is affected by sin, that's occupied by demons and Satan. And then also, you have the book of Ecclesiastes, which, ex, which explains how to navigate between, like, Proverbs and Job. How do we live with confidence in God when life doesn't make sense? And so... Just to, I just wanted to lay that out because it's really easy to read a passage like this and say, well, if I disobey these five principles, life will be great for me. And it is basically true, according to verses 1 and 2, that obeying these principles that are laid out for us in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, will add years to your life and add peace to your life. That is absolutely true. That's what he says in verse 2. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. And so... We need to learn that and, and, and learn what it means because I think nobody doesn't want peace in their life and nobody doesn't desire to live a long time. So Proverbs gives us that path. Proverbs 4, 7 says that the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it cost you all you have, get understanding. Yet so many of us, if we were to be honest, don't think wisdom is really that important. It's so undermined by our culture. Some of us focus so much on our personal freedom that we don't really think about wisdom. We say things like, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I'm just going to try to figure out what's right for me. That's the narrative the culture is preaching to you. Wisdom resides within and figure it out for yourself. 
And so therefore, wisdom is an infringement to our culture's personal freedom. But some of us, especially if we've grown up in the church and we're professing Christians and we want to honor God, we just think it all comes down to really just morality. It's just doing the right thing. We just try to figure out what God has said and just go do it. And we don't really see a place for wisdom. Some Christians think that to seek wisdom is actually anti-faith. We just need to trust the Lord. But God calls us to seek wisdom, understanding, prudence, discernment, and insight. And all of these things are good things. So, we've said that wisdom is more than moral living. It's more than knowledge. Let me give you this definition for wisdom. Wisdom is seeing the reality of what is really going on and determining what to do about it. We are faced with issues of wisdom every single day. Most of the decisions that we make every day are not issues of information, and they're not issues of morality. They're issues of wisdom. It's not enough to be a person of high moral principle and and a person of high moral values. We have to be people of wisdom. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to make good decisions in like 80% of the decisions we have to make. You see, wisdom is the ability to make good decisions in 80% of life's situations in which moral rules don't immediately apply. There might be three or four choices that we have to choose between, and they might all be right, and they might all be good, but they might have different moral values competing for priority. How do we make the decision? Which is the right way to go? It's pretty easy to make a decision when There's two paths, one right and one wrong. It's harder to make a decision when there are four right paths. So one of the things I want us to notice from Proverbs is that wisdom gives us principles, and it's a process. It's not a formula. It's not a technique that we learn. It's a path that we walk on. Oftentimes, we don't want a path. A path is mundane, it takes time, it's repetitive. We want a door. We want a technique. We want a clear sign. Something instantaneous. Something formula-based. And sometimes as we seek to discern God's will, we'll ask him for a sign. Like, Lord, show us, show me what you want me to do. And then maybe sometimes we'll just open the Bible at random and see what it says. I've heard of someone who did that, and when he opened up to Matthew 27, 7, which says, then Judas went out and hanged himself. And he thought, well, let me try again. So he just randomly opened the Bible again, and it landed on Luke 10, 37, go and do likewise. And then he thought, oh, dear, this is going horribly wrong. So he did it again and turned to John 13, 27, and Jesus to- it says, Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. So there is no formula. There's no technique God calls us to do the hard work of seeking him and seeking his wisdom. We've got to get on the path of wisdom. We've got to walk in the way of wisdom. Wisdom is a lifelong pursuit. It's developing the day-to-day and moment-to-moment spiritual habits that help us become a wise person. And the question is, what are those habits? What is that path? What are the ways that we can gain wisdom? Well, it's answered for us in these first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3. In verses 3 through 12, we have all the themes of the rest of this book 
in kind of a compact mini guide to faithful living. It's amazing. These principles are, are stated over and over again in the book of Proverbs. But what I want to point out this morning is the five things that compromise a, a compri comprise, not compromise, comprise a wise, godly life. And these five principles function as a means to becoming wise and godly, as well as signs to us that we are growing in wisdom. So it's not just a path, but it's also a means by which we can kind of hold a mirror up to ourselves and say, hey, am I becoming wise? Am I growing in wisdom? So I want to unpack those five principles for us this morning. Here's number one. The first principle of wisdom is a principle of identity. Who you see yourself as. It's a very, very, very important concept in Scripture. How you view yourself is critical to whether or not you will be wise. Look at Proverbs 3, verses 3 through the first part of verse 5. It says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. These words, love and faithfulness, that begin verse 3, let not steadfast love and faithfulness depart from you, are two Hebrew words that are almost always used, especially in the Old Testament, to describe God's love and faithfulness to us as his people, not our love and faithfulness to him. These are covenant words from God that describe our intimate and personal relationship with him. For example, Exodus 34, 6. And he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in, these two words, steadfast love and faithfulness. This is actually extremely practical. This is extremely practical. It's actually very hard, though. It's not enough just to know that God loves you. If you want to become wise, you have to find ways to pound that reality deeply into the very heart of your heart every day so that you are absolutely convinced that he is committed to you, that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, and he will do anything for you. That's an issue of identity. My God is my God. You've got to pound that into your heart. Bind it to your heart every single day. You have to remind yourself about it as you go about your day. You have to find ways every day to make the absolute industrial strength commitment of God to you a reality. A functional, life-sustaining, stabilizing, centering reality. You have to learn deep, learn deep in your soul that he loves you personally and deeply. Now, why is that so important for wisdom? It's the primary thing. The book of Proverbs is constantly telling us to be wise, and it's constantly saying that wise people have poise and calm about them. They're not jerked here and there by the circumstances of life. They're steady. They're stable. Yes, there can be fluctuation and discouragement and all those things, but basically there's poise. There's calm. They have an inner unassailable peace. So no matter what the situation, there's this kind of quiet confidence 
that they, and that's why they make good choices. No matter what the situation, they never lose their head. So many bad decisions are made when life hits us and we're thrown off. Well, I got to seek happiness somewhere. This bad thing happened. And then we go off and make bad decisions because it, that circumstance that hit us didn't meet poise and confidence. It met insecurity and fear and discouragement. So where does that come from? How do you get to the point where you can say, I know God loves me at the deepest level? Well, you have to find ways of pounding it into your heart all the time. The fact that God loves you so it becomes so real to your heart that it leads to that inner poise that we talked about in calm that never, ever, ever can be dislodged in any successful way. You'll never get that unless you do this. It's the first discipline, going deeper into God's love for us and his commitment to us every day and finding ways to make his absolute love and faithfulness real to your heart. Do you know this is why we do this? Why we do the Lord's Supper. It is a manifestation of our obedience to Proverbs 3, 4 through 5. 3, 3 4, and 5. Because it's a tangible way to, leave, to, to, to come to a table and be reminded, have it sensed in your taste buds as you think and focus and meditate, Jesus loves me. And if he has loved me to this degree, will he not take care of me? So that's why we do the Lord's Supper. It's a, it's a way of, that's why we gather in corporate worship and in Bible studies and in small groups and in prayer meetings. It's because we need this. Did not Thad testify to it this morning? I mean, even when he was opening worship and just saying, you know, like come into the prayer meeting, just sit, you know, and I get reminded, yes, I'm weak, but God is strong. He's able to help me. It's another avenue, and we do it when we read the Scriptures personally and when we listen to sermons and podcasts and things like that to try to get the truth into our hearts and memorize God's Word. So put the point is, put your deepest trust in God and His grace and every day remind yourself of His unconditional covenant love for you. Do not instead put your hopes in idols or in your own performance. That's a way to lead away from wisdom and to, into a path of folly. So the first issue is an issue of of identity. It's resting yourself completely in the covenant faithfulness of God to us because of the death of his son, Jesus Christ, for us. So that's number one. Number two, second principle, authority, a principle of authority. Notice Proverbs 3 again, verse 5. Do not trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Or he will make straight your paths. See, this, if, if you didn't know this, our culture is working toward a redefinition of who a human being fundamentally is. So if a human being is fundamentally a creation of God that is loved by God, that is redeemed by God, then that identity it will lead to a wise life. If you reject that identity, then you are fighting against the grain of the universe. Because whether we acknowledge it or not, we're creations of God. And so 
It's an issue of authority then. Once we embrace our identity as loved by God, as redeemed by God, as cherished by God, then we willingly give ourselves to the authority of God, right? Because we, we entrust ourselves to one we know who loves us. It's not some manic tyrant in the sky dictating to us, this is the way you will live, I made you. No, the, and he had every right to do that and say that. But no, he said, this is the way I call you to live because I died for you. That's a totally different motivation. And this motivation is a grace motivation, a love motivation, that when we see, yes, Jesus gave himself for me, he laid his life down for me, why would I not want to listen to him? So it's an issue of authority. The fool in Proverbs is an individualist, one who defines right and wrong for themselves. The fool is someone who says, I don't need anybody else's advice. I know my mind. I know what I want. I know what the right thing to do is. Don't tell me contrary. Fool doesn't need advice, but a wise person is so unsure of his or her wisdom that they need to surround themselves with counselors, friends, advisors, mentors, and you go get them, and as a result, you get wise. Proverbs again and again commends the value of mentoring and seeking wisdom and getting other people's perspectives on situations and having a default non-trust in your own perception of reality. But how many of us really operate that way? How many of us believe that our perception of reality is the definitive one? That it's, keep, keep this in mind, brothers and sisters, the only person that's truly objective is God. He's the only one who has all the information. And Proverbs would call us to have, no, we, we don't lean on our understanding. We acknowledge him and give him space to speak. And where he has clearly spoken, we listen and we yield and we follow. And so the second principle is submitting our whole minds to Scripture, not thinking that we're better or wiser than God's Word. We bring this book to bear on our whole lives, on our thinking, on our decision-making, on our priorities, and we become a person under authority. So that's the second way to wisdom. The first is gospel, The second, and having a gospel identity, and the second is being a person under the authority of God's Word. Third, humility. Notice how all these are kind of feeding each other, right? There's this identity, then there's authority, third, humility. Look at verses 7 and 8. Do not, or be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Here's the great paradox of wisdom. And those of you who have been in the faith a long time and walk with Jesus a long time, you'd be the first to say amen to this. The more wise you get, the more you think you are not wise. The wiser you get in this world, the less sure you are of your own wisdom. You know why? Because that's humility. To put it another way, if you think you're wise, you're a fool. When you realize how foolish you have been, that's when you're making progress in the path of wisdom. Being wise 
means that you are absolutely in touch with reality. We stop the denials. We realize our limitations. We realize our weaknesses. We realize our failures. We realize our hidden sins, not just the external ones that people see, but also the internal ones of bitterness and envy and hate and jealousy and selfish anger and self-centeredness and arrogance and pride and condemning and judgmental attitude and powerless to actually change ourselves on our own. And if we don't know this about ourselves, we will continue to make foolish choices in our lives. But when we realize we are the most messed up person in the room, I am the most messed up person in this room, and I will argue with you about it. And I'm not being insincere. That is the path to wisdom. Understanding that, yes, okay, I'm made by God. I'm sinful because of the fall. I've inherited a sinful nature, being born with it. But God loves me. He sent Jesus to redeem me. He's given me his word to tell me, to educate me out of foolishness. I will listen to him. I want to listen to him. I'm, I, I fear the Lord. I'm not going to just walk in the ways that he has said are evil or be wise in my own eyes. So be humble. Be teachable. Be forgiving and understanding when you want to be critical. Be ready to learn from others even when they come to be critical of you. That's humility. You know, one of the best examples of this that I've read recently is about from Scott Sauls. I've mentioned him before from time to time. He's a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, Covenant Presbyterian Church. And for five years, he worked with Tim Keller in New York. And Tim Keller is one of my heroes in many ways and not a perfect man, as nobody is except Jesus. But um, Tim is a great example of this. And Scott worked with him for five years, and he wrote this tribute because Tim recently retired, and he stepped into teaching full-time and out of pastoral ministry. And so he wrote Scott, who's a good friend of his, wrote this tribute to him, and it, it was all about Tim's humility, especially his humility in the face of those who were critical of him. And he says the following. He says, Tim is one of the best examples I have seen of covering shame with the gospel. In five years of serving under his leadership, never once did I see him tear another person down to their face on the internet or through gossip. Instead, he seemed to always assume the good in people. Occasionally, he would talk about how having the forgiveness and affirmation of Jesus frees us to, quote, catch people doing good instead of looking for things to criticize or be offended by. Even when someone had truly done wrong or been in error, Tim would respond with humble restraint and self-reflection instead of venting negativity and criticism. Like the grace of God does, Tim covered people's flaws and sins, including mine on more than one occasion. He did this because that's what grace does. It reminds us that in Jesus we are shielded and protected from the worst things about ourselves. Because Jesus shields us like this, we of all people should restore reputations versus destroying reputations, protect a good name versus calling someone a name, shut down gossip versus feeding gossip, and restore broken relationships versus begrudging broken people. Here's a great example of humility and how it works itself out. Even when you see things differently, still seeking to learn from the person. Even those who say mean things about you or disagree with you or whatever, but seeking to be humble and learn what, what, what part you contributed to the problem. So not being wise in your own eyes, having humility. 
Number four on the path to wisdom is generosity. Generosity. We've seen identity, authority, and humility. Now let's look at generosity, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So what is Proverbs commending here? It's commending generosity. Generosity with all of our possessions. Sharing our time, sharing our talent, sharing our treasure with those who have less. Being willing to give of ourselves, being willing specifically here in Proverbs chapter 9 to give of our finances and to help those, to help the work of the church, to help ministries, to help people, to help causes, to help anyone that we can help. Are you generous? Are you seeking to honor the Lord with your wealth? And then fifthly and finally, adversity. Adversity. Notice verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. How often do we think about the path to wisdom, including adversity? It does. It's a necessary component to learning wisdom. We have to accept and learn from difficulties and suffering Like Pastor Keith reminded us in Sunday school this morning about Jesus and testing the disciples, bringing them out into the storm, walking on the waves. He brought them into a period of adversity so that they could learn from it, that Jesus could in fact be trusted and that he in fact was the sovereign God of the universe. So through the gospel then we recognize that our trials and our adversity are not forms of punishment. How can they be forms of punishment when verse 3 and 4 are a reality? Let not steadfast love and faithfulness depart from you. Be utterly convinced that God has your best in mind so that the trials that do come are meant for our purification, are meant for our refinement, but not for our destruction or our damnation. We'll never be wise without knowing trouble. If you get down to verses 11 and 12... It's a little surprising, actually, because up until verse 11 and 12, do you see how many interesting promises there are? Verse 4, if you seek after wisdom, people will like you. See that in verse 4? Then verse 8, you'll be healthy. Then verse 10, you'll make money if you're generous. In other words, it's really saying that if you go into the way of wisdom, generally your life will tend to get better. But then you get to verses 11 and 12, and you meet adversity. And it's a little surprising because you're not kind of expecting it. It's like, okay, be humble. That'll be healing for me and refreshment to my bones. Okay, trust in the Lord. He'll make my path straight. Bind his faithfulness and love around my neck and let it center me and give me inner poise and strength. Be generous, honor the Lord with my wealth, and he'll bless me. Oh, and then there's this word about trials. Wisdom does not avoid suffering. It transforms suffering into more wisdom. Notice it says, don't despise it. Don't resent it. Do you see that? Don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't resent it. Don't buck under it. In other words, you have to stay on the path. Don't let adversity get you off the path. Don't go stoic. 
and just say, oh, I'm just going to not let it bother me. I'm just going to get through it. Don't go the resentful way and get bitter. Let the trouble in your life drive you to God and to knowing him more, more about yourself, more about God's word, more into your, the arms of your family and friends and church family that loves you. If you know trouble in the context of those others, during troubled times you grow in wisdom much faster than any other time. So you know what? As I meditated on these things and I thought, how countercultural. How countercultural. This is totally the opposite of what we hear and breathe every day. No, love yourself. Let yourself be your guide. Follow your heart. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. In other words, and, and, and man, you got to look out for number one. And, and you don't deserve a hard life. And yet the very thing that we're doing is inviting hardship into our lives when we live like that. We're asking. We're asking for a beating from life because we're living against the grain of the universe, not in the way with reality. The way with reality is God created the world. This is the way, this is the path to wisdom. Since God has spoken about you, his voice matters more than your own voice. So whether you feel or I feel that we're lovable or not, God determines that. God spoke, that settles it. So God spoke, he said, I love you, I sent Jesus to die for you, you're mine, trust in me, got it. All right, Lord, what's next? I've spoken, here's my word, read it and heed it. Got it. That's humility. That's not being wise in your own eyes. That's being aware of your sinfulness and aware of your need for a voice. And because God has lavished you with such generosity in giving his son and binding his heart to you and demonstrating great steadfast love and faithfulness in giving you his word, of course you will be a generous person. Of course you will lay your life down for others because Jesus laid your life, his life down for you. And therefore, we will honor the Lord with our wealth, with our treasure, with our time, with our lives. And we will let God do what God wants to do with us. And we will trust him. That is the path to wisdom. That is the way to grow in wisdom. Because that's the way we live in line with realities. And you know what? As you meditate on these five elements, who do you think about? I think about Jesus. Rooted in grace obeying and delighting in the word of God, humble before others, sacrificially generous toward his neighbor, and steadfast in trials. Do you not think of Jesus? He is the personification of wisdom. Colossians 2.3 says, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1.24, Christ is described as the wisdom of God. And so when we read a passage like this, we have to go to Jesus. We have to say, what does this teach me about my wise God, Jesus Christ? Well, did he not show the ultimate trust and faithfulness to God and confidence that God would rescue him when he went to the cross? When he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, wrestling with God's call, saying, God, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done because I know you love me, Father. 
And then he, his mind was saturated and shaped by Scripture. Remember his temptation narrative. When the devil comes to him and how he is literally soaked in the, in the Word of God. And he responds with, the, with confidence in the Scriptures. No one had more confidence in the Scriptures than Jesus. And yet he's meek and lowly in heart. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle, I'm humble, I'm lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. And who's more generous than Jesus? Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 9. Who can measure his generosity? And who can measure his suffering and his adversity? And how he bore it without complaint and without retaliation and without defending himself. We can only grow in these five areas if we know we are saved by the costly grace of this wise Jesus. <laughs> that keeps us from idols, it keeps us from self sufficiency, it keeps us from pride, it keeps us from selfishness with our things and from crumbling under our troubles. Jesus is wisdom personified, and believing his gospel brings these character qualities into our lives. You know, there's really, I want to close with this. So we've looked at, we've looked at the principles of wisdom, those five from Proverbs 3, 1 to 12. Then we looked at the pattern, Jesus. Now I want to close by just taking the next five minutes or so and unpacking this pathway. So it's one thing to know the principles, right? And it's another thing to know that Jesus fulfilled them, but how do you connect those two things? How do you connect the principles of God's word that he lays out here, that Jesus fulfills them, and how do we relate to those things? Well, there's four ways in my mind that we could respond, and three of them would be wrong, and one of them would be right. Okay? Here's the three ways that you should not respond to this. One, let go and let God. Ever heard that phrase before? Let go and let God. Having over-spiritualized our approach to the Christian life, we just decide to do nothing at all. We just turn it all over to the Lord and allow him to live his life through us. We decide perhaps because we've heard or read it in some place that any effort on our part to pursue wisdom is to live a life in the flesh. We conclude that we should not work at living the Christian life. We just trust God and he does the work for us. I'm just going to pray and he's going to make me wise. But you know what? Scripture commands you to make every effort to grow as a Christian. Make every effort. Do everything you possibly can to grow in wisdom. Look at Proverbs chapter 2, the beginning. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understand, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. That sounds like a lot of human responsibility to me. That sounds like if you don't work, don't expect it. Here's what Don Carson says about growing in holiness. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people don't gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. 
We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. But if we're not careful, we can overcorrect and fall into another equally wrong path. All right, I'm going to try to correct us here. Just do it. All right, that's wrong too. The let go, let God, just over-spiritualize it, and just do it is wrong. This is the, I can do it on my own, by my own willpower. I'm a strong person. That's doomed for failure. John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Solo Christianity doesn't work. I've tried it. Sure you have too. It leads to a lot of failure, frustration, and very likely unsatisfactory relationships with other people. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, will hardly be visible because it is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of you or me. Instead of growing vigorously in our lives, those gracious qualities will be stunted or withered because we're trying to produce them on our own. We may have lots of Christian activity and even apparent Christian success, but we'll possess little genuine Spirit-produced fruit. So when we meet with frustration in this way, because self-reliance dies so hard, we're susceptible to another potential error, which is subtle and difficult because it's so easy for us to fall into. I call it, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. This is the way of living the Christian life that is mainly characterized by partial dependence on Jesus. The unconscious but nevertheless real attitude that I can of my own self live the Christian life up to a point, but then I need the Lord's help after that point. You ever been there? It's the assumption, unconscious most of the time, but very real, that there is a certain reservoir that lives within my soul that is good and wise and spiritually strong, and it's within my own character, and I draw on it for the ordinary duties of life, but beyond that, I need the Lord's help when things get particularly tough. But sadly, this is probably the most common approach among sincere Christians today. It's the approach that's used by thousands of thousands of Christians who pray a prayer for God's help at the beginning of the day and engage in God neglect for 20-something hours. And then at the end of the day, they'll pray another prayer of thanksgiving. Maybe. It's the approach that prays for God's help and then proceeds from that point onward as if all depended on them unless they meet a crisis. Then help me, Lord. John Owen wrote, We do not have the ability in ourselves to accomplish the least of God's tasks. This is a law of grace. (laughs) When we recognize it is impossible for us to perform a duty in our own strength, we will discover the secret of its accomplishment. But alas, this is a secret we often fail to discover. So I'm going to lead us now this final word. This is what I believe is the correct path to wisdom. It's not let go, let God. It's not just do it yourself. It's not this kind of partial dependence on Jesus. It's a holistic dependence on Jesus that expresses itself in, Lord, enable me. Lord, enable me. The believer that practices this approach knows that the self-effort approach and the let go and let God approach and the partial trust approach are all futile. They have learned that 
we need God's help, not just beyond a certain point, but in every aspect of our lives. We don't just pray for help during crises or stressful times. Rather, our continual prayer is, Lord, enable me all day long, for without you I can do nothing. So it's within your day. I I remember this quote from Charles Spurgeon that has so stuck with me over the years. I wish I practiced it better, but it's such a good word. And he said, I always find it fitting and wise to put in a word of prayer before everything I do. What if our days were marked by that? Where as we moved out of one activity into another activity, that we just prayed. We just took a moment, 30 seconds, 10 seconds, 5 seconds, to say, Lord, enable me today to do this. Whether you feel your need for help or not, whether it's as old as yesterday's, you know, like, I've been doing this for 25 years. It's not going to turn out any different if God doesn't show up. Wow. Talk about arrogance. But how subtly our pride just in self-reliance shows up. But no, Lord, enable me. Enable me. Help me. Come, come through for me. Without you, I can do nothing. So to illustrate, and with this I'm going to close, let's imagine that God asked us to lift a heavy log. All right, there's a big log in front of you. God says, lift it. Perhaps the log would symbolize maybe a difficult circumstance you must go through or just the day-to-day demands of the Christian life. So this believer doesn't say, we don't respond by, Lord, okay, I've got a log that's too heavy for me to lift. If you'll take one end, I'll take the other end, and we can do this together. Let me start, and then if I you know, need some help, I ask you. That's not the way we approach it. Rather, when we look at the log, we say, Lord, you need to enable me to lift this log. You have to come through here. Please come through. To all appearances, it will seem like I'm lifting the log, and I truly am, but I'm only doing it because you've given me the strength to do it. And this is, I think, what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, when he says, I can, I can, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. The log in that circumstance was his challenge of contentment in the midst of changing circumstances. And Paul was able to meet that challenge not with God's help, as though God and Paul were sharing the load, but God's total enabling of Paul to trust God. So the difference between Lord help me and Lord enable me is a matter of partial trust in our self-effort versus total reliance on Christ. And this is the path that Philippians 2 verses 12 through 13 give us, which is the path of what I call dependent responsibility. It's the path of God working in us to work out his salvation. God must work in, we must work out. We're both responsible to grow and dependent on the Holy Spirit to enable us to do so. And this is a difficult principle to learn because we tend to fall in both the ditches of self-reliance or just utter God-reliance in a way that, that doesn't manifest real trust in Him and doesn't result in action on our part. So we tend to vacillate between those two. And one day we'll try harder and the next day we'll just turn it all over to the Lord and let Him live His life through us. And we go back and forth on this pendulum. But both approaches are wrong. It doesn't do, he, God doesn't do the work for us, but through the Spirit, He enables us to work. 
And that is the key. So our transformation very much involves our activity, but it's an activity that must be carried out in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And so the path to wisdom is that way, brothers and sisters. While the Spirit is not dependent on us to do his work, we are dependent on him to do ours. So we must depend upon him to do within us what only he can do. Spirit, convince me, help me to believe that God loves me. Spirit, help me to submit to the authority of God's word. Spirit, help me to be humble. Spirit, help me to be generous and lavish. And Spirit, help me to persevere under trials. So we must depend on him just as much to enable us to do what he has given us to do. So whether it's his work or our work, in either case, we are dependent on him. And as a result, we will grow in wisdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to dive into this rich chapter of your word. Many of us in this room have learned Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 by heart from our youth. We have known these great promises of trusting in you with all of our heart and not leaning on our own understanding. But God, how we need you still. In some ways, we feel ourselves to be all the more foolish because of our growth and understanding of who you are. And so we pray that you would make us wise. Help us to know how to navigate reality, to live in your world when 80% of the decisions are not necessarily easily decided on. And give us wisdom and help us to have the right priorities, the priorities of identity and authority and humility and generosity and adversity. And help us to have these things upon our hearts so that we can navigate your world wisely to your glory in such a way that it is obvious that it is God enabling us to do so. We pray all this through and because of Jesus. Amen.